What are we doing this morning? This morning we are looking at a very practical part of the Catechism. The lecture this morning is going to have much more of a practical focus than a catechetical, uh, theological, whatever focus. Um, today we're looking at the battle for purity. Um, so I'm going to draw on some resources from outside of the Catechism to try and illustrate some of the points this part of the Catechism is saying to us. But first, the, the first page here is going through some of the, the points from the Catechism on it. And the first point I make at the top of the page there, it says, the Catechism describes purity as a battle. Now this is very important pastorally. When you're dealing with people in the confession, this is an important thing to quote. It's not going to be easy. The church doesn't say it's easy. The Catechism, how does it describe purity? A battle. What's the battle? I see the desires are at war with our intellect. So we've noted repeatedly in this course, the passions, as the Catechism says, are in themselves good, but there's a disorder within them. And note the, the ninth and the tenth commandments, which is where this is what we're looking at, is, are about coveting. Um, Josh, can you read that quote for us? St. John distinguishes three kinds of covetedness or concupiscence. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. The Catholic catechetical tradition, the ninth commandment, forbids carnal concupiscence. The tenth forbids coveting another's good. So two types of coveting, two types of concupiscence, desiring. This word concupiscence, are you all familiar with it already uh, in your childhood catechesis, dare I hope? Um, it's the word that describes how our fallen passions are at war with reason. So I say literally, the Latin means with desire, con cupi. Um, it can thus cover both the disordered and ordered movements of passion. So the word itself doesn't automatically imply a problem. And so before the fall, I say our passions move to the good properly, to real goods, not apparent goods, to goods in right measure, i.e. neither too much nor too little, as we've illustrated, talked about when we talked about the passions and virtue. But, Michael, can you read the paragraph from the Catechism starting etymologically? Etymologically, concupiscence can refer to any intense form of human desire. Christian theology has given it a particular meaning, the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of the human reason. The Apostle St. Paul identifies it with the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. Concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin. It unsettles man's moral faculties and, without being in itself an offense, inclines man to commit sin. Few points there. Um, so, etymologically, the word doesn't in itself mean a problem, but the tradition has taken this word and said, let's use that word to describe this problem all humans know that St. Paul talks about. I want to do this, but I end up doing that. I, I want to not do that, but I end up doing this. What is it, this battle within me, concupiscence? More strictly speaking, still, concupiscence means you are inclined to sin. Like a man with one leg, you don't automatically fall over, but you have an inclination to fall over. 
This is what concupiscence means. Purity, what does the word purity, what does it indicate here? I paraphrase, purity means we are rightly focused. What should we rightly be focused on? On God and on things as they relate to him. Brother Adam, can you read that one? The sixth beatitude proclaims, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart refers to those who have attuned their intellects and will to the demands of God's holiness, chiefly in three areas, charity, chastity, or sexual rectitude, love of truth, and orthodoxy of faith. There is a connection between purity of heart, of body, and of faith. So these things go together. If your heart is not pure, as St. Thomas would phrase it, your intellect is clouded, you can't see properly. My passions get all excited when I'm looking at a bad movie. I just can't think properly of God. I can't see him. Um, whereas when my passions are calm, I'm able to think clearly. I'm able to see God clearly. So this blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God isn't a random promise with that good thing. It, it directly follows. And that's why, especially for a priest, if we let impurity get into us, the consequences are disastrous for our priesthood. You can't preach well if impurity is clouding your thinking. You're just not going to have um, good stuff to preach about. All you'll be able to preach about is, be nice to everyone and please put money in the collection. Um, if we want something deeper, um, we can't let pure impurity get a hold of us. Okay, the Catechism says this is a lifelong struggle. Quoting from the Catechism, the baptized must continue to struggle against concupiscence of the flesh and disordered desires. With God's grace, he will prevail. By the virtue and gift of chastity, for chastity lets us love with upright and undivided heart. By purity of intention, which consists in seeking the true end of man. By purity of vision, external and internal. By discipline of feelings and imagination. By refusing all complicity in impure thoughts that incline us to turn aside from the path of God's commandments. By prayer. Purity requires modesty, an integral part of temperance. It means refusing to unveil what should remain hidden. It guides how one looks at others and behaves towards them in conformity with the dignity of persons and their solidarity. There's a lot in there. Um, so I'm going to unpack some of that and some of the practical things I'm going to try and outline in our lecture this morning. Over the page, I have a list of some books I recommend to you. Um, what I've called contemporary chastity resources. Um, so as a future priest, what are the things you should be doing in your parish? If you're going to be faithful to your mission, you need to be talking to the youth in your parish about chastity. Um, how do you safeguard yourself in terms of safe environment stuff? Um, I'd say when you talk to, 
teenagers in the parish about this. You can protect yourself from allegations by warning the parents in advance by saying, you know, I'm going to be talking about these issues in our coming session so no one gets surprised. Um, my experience is then usually you'll have the parents make sure the children get there that week. Um, but you then don't, you want to avoid that type of parent who will complain that you mentioned something. Um, you and the parents should be allies in this. Um, you need, they need to feel you're supporting their role, that you're not surprising them by talking about something they weren't ready to talk about. I have a question. I just yeah. um, what do you think of Edward Street's uh, Theology of the Body? Men, women in ministry alone. I remember I got that book in college and read it. I thought it was pretty good. I don't know if you've read it before or like if there's a reason it's not on here. I don't know that particular book. I'll I'll look that one up. But you know Edward I do, Ted Free, yes, yes. Um, so I just don't know that particular book. Um, some particular books that I list there. So at the top, um, this is old now, but still available. Um, the Real Love by Mary Beth Bonacci. Uh, this book I've given to every teenage girl in my last two parishes. Um, if you give somebody a book, you're indicating to them, it's not just me randomly telling you these things that no one else you know is saying, but actually there is other sensible people. They put it in a book. Um, this book and the other I'm going to indicate lots of questions within a brief answer, uh, you know, a couple pages. So lots of bite-sized chucks that a teenage brain can not be too terrified by. When you say every teenage girl, do you mean like every uh, It comes to mass, yeah. Okay. That's expensive? Well, I wasn't thinking about that. I, was just, I thought so I'm initiating the dialogue in, in doing this. Um, I've had small enough parishes I've known who all the teenage girls are, the teenage boys are. Um, I've had some connection in some form with them, um, but I haven't aimed to only give a book to someone who's already super committed. So I'm kind of pushing the boundary with someone who maybe hasn't expressed most interest, but I've got enough contact to give them something. Um, Jason Everett's book. So for a girl, a book written by a woman, because this flavor is slightly different. Jason Everett, who I imagine more of you are likely to be familiar with. He's a big campaigner um, on chastity on purity, if you really love me. Uh, he also has this book, Theology of His Body, Theology of Her Body, uh, very clever, depending which side you start it. It's, um, so how does a guy know what a girl's approach is? He looks at the book from the other direction. Uh, it's also quite short and some, um, it's a lot of money to do that, to give out books. Um, it's not, if you think of it financially, it's not much of an investment. If 10% if of those teenagers continue to come to Mass as adults, um, that's been more than a financial investment that's going to pay back because they're going to put money in the future collection plate. If you don't 
get them to take these issues seriously. They are going to walk away. They're not going to put money in the future collection plate. Just even in terms of money, because your, your parish finance committee is going to say, oh, we can't afford to do that, Father. Um, even if you break it down in terms of money, it just doesn't make sense to not invest money uh, in these questions. Then lastly, in terms of specific books I brought along this morning, I say specific advice for young men, teenage boys on purity and masturbation. This book, Every Young Man's Battle. There's a parallel one called Every Young Woman's Battle. I indicate there, so there's a whole chapter section that um, I've, I've copied and distributed to every teenage boy I've worked with that has very specific advice on how to deal with impurity and grow impurity. The problem with this book, and the reason I don't give the book out, um, is it's got some very bad theology in it. Uh, it's written by evangelicals. You all know Sola Scriptura, only the Bible. The word masturbation doesn't appear in the Bible. So they have a long thing in here going on. Is it a sin or isn't it? Because the word isn't there in the Bible. So it, we, um, so they speculate if you could masturbate without having lust, because Jesus does condemn lust, then it might be okay, which is utterly crazy. And it really is an example of where that whole sola scriptura approach falls apart. If you, if you can't bring reason into the analysis of what's in the Bible and tradition, so really good practical advice for you to articulate to those you're working with, but don't give them the book itself. Do they reference uh, Genesis, Onan or whatever his name was? Onan Sin, no. Um, yeah, I think that would be like a situation where like lust is not necessarily... Hmm. But the word masturbation doesn't appear. And if you're going to be sola scriptura, Uh, so, some resources there, there are many other resources. In a sense, the real reason I'm putting those together is to tell you there are resources, get them, think of that as part of what you have to have and do as a priest. Uh, other than Adam's suggestion of another book, any comments in that regard? So, people like Jason Everett will come and give talks at youth conferences. That you're unlikely to get a speaker of that quality or caliber in your local parish. But if you can get a young adult come and speak to your group so they hear the priests say one thing and hear someone their age or about their age saying, I'm living it out, it is a struggle, it is worth it, it is possible, um, then you have multiple voices saying the same thing. But I do think it's important that they hear a priest say this as well, that they don't just hear the kind of non-authoritative voice of a layperson. Um, you kind of want all these voices saying the same thing, because the culture is toxic, the culture isn't going to support them in this. Okay, so... Um, Page three. 
I'm not going to go through all of these pages and all of these notes. I'm going to race through these fairly fast. A few points on page three, just in terms of why, um, why purity is worth the fight. Uh, so what would I talk through with my parish youth group? How would I articulate this? How have I articulated this? This is a page of things I've gone through with them. So first bullet point, why purity? In order to be free to think and live clearly and freely now. So the younger guy, say a man who is wandering around thinking about sex all the time, what does that mean? Say, well, it means he's not free to enjoy the rest of life around him. He's living in a fantasy, not living in reality. He's missing out on what reality can give him. That he is, I say, alone in his mind. I say, this is tragic and lonely. I say, is this why you're grinning? Um, okay. I say, I say, we call people wankers as an insult for a reason. That it's a sad, pathetic, lonely lifestyle. Um, <laughs> oh wow, okay, sorry, here's a transatlantic um, Yeah, okay. Um it's 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 a it's a guy abusing his body. Yeah. Um Okay, I'm gonna have to amend my notes to get an American term that is equally abusive. So I don't need to um, say this to anybody. You shouldn't say this to anybody. To call someone a jerk is not as anywhere near as powerful as this is a term of abuse. Um, do you get the basic point I'm trying to indicate here? It's, a guy living this is missing out on life. And that's a, a powerful point to make to him for his sake. It's not just you're doing something wrong, you're sinning. You're missing out on life. Be there. I say, a young man who's mastered his thoughts and attractions to pleasure, I say, he has thoughts free to think about people around him, about real people. He has thoughts able to enter into real life and enjoy real life. And I say reality is worth enjoying. So that's a simple but very important catechetical pastoral point. Life is worth living. If you're stuck in your own head with impurity, you're not going to be able to engage with life. So that's free now. See, free to love as a future, and this is in your context, future celibate priest. See, habits of self-indulgence and impurity make us love ourselves, not love others. To love someone else, you need to be free from yourself so that you can focus on the other and love others. That self-absorption is the enemy of love, and that with this, therefore, in reverse, self-mastery is necessary if we are to love others. Only the man who has mastered himself is free to love others. So there's one line there to highlight. Only the man who has mastered himself is free to love others. 
And I note that the habits of self-indulgence and sex are more powerful than almost any other habit, that it needs to be conquered. Okay, rephrasing the context in terms of marriage. So most of your teenage boys, they're not going to become priests, they're going to get married. Why is it vital for them if they're going to have a happy future marriage? I say to enjoy sex successfully when you're married. Now I note a common phenomenon here. I say there's a married man downstairs watching porn, masturbating, while his wife is waiting for him upstairs. And when he then goes upstairs, he has nothing left to give her. And tragically, that is an all too common phenomenon. So it's not single men who are the majority of those viewing pornography and committing self-abuse. Married men or men with partners. And it interferes in their relationship with their spouse. Um, I've given this talk multiple times. I've had people online listen to me give this talk uh, and comment back to me what you've described there is exactly the tragic reality of my own life. Um, you need to tell the young man as a young man if you want to have sex happily when you're married not for the five years of impurity in your struggle now preparing for marriage but for your whole life you've got to win this battle now. I say this tragic scenario might sound unbelievable to a teenager, but it is all too common. That porn and masturbation prevent you enjoying sex in marriage. They don't aid you in it. That porn addiction and masturbation addiction weaken a marriage. And if you do these things habitually as a teenager, you will carry these habits into your marriage and they will prevent you having as good sex, as good a sex life as you could have had otherwise. Then quote a study there uh, that was in USA Today, so one of the most secular newspapers that said, the media tell us that the most exciting sex is outside marriage, but several major research studies show that church ladies and the men who sleep with them are among the most sexually satisfied people on the face of the earth. Um, now I don't remember the... <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how church ladies are defined and I don't know exactly how they did have research parameters for how they were defining these things in terms of sexually satisfied um, but it's the opposite of the stereotype um, but it actually accords with everything else we as Catholics have been saying kind of throughout this course a happy balanced integrated man with a happy, balanced, integrated woman, they're going to have a better relationship. They're going to have better sex. So even if sex is the only thing you're concerned about, it just makes sense to conquer yourself, to gain self-mastery. So, question? No. Okay. Page four. Or any comments at this stage? Yeah. Is that supposed to say revenge or revenge? It mean, it's revenge. So that's a typo there, isn't it? Um, so the, the article on footnote two is called The Revenge of the Church Ladies. Um, that society says they're boring, and, but actually they're the ones having the best sex. Um, okay. 
Page four. Now, before I read through this, the basic point, um, and this, some of you may have heard some of this through the Augustan way things and whatever, um, the sex drive within a man, the kind of degree of strength it has is not static, it varies. And we can either hype it up and make it more and more difficult to control and have it more and more obsess us, or we can calm it to a natural state where it then becomes workable as something to control, manage, integrate. So the battle either kind of gets worse and worse by giving in to impurity and that drive just accelerating and becoming more and more frantic. So there's a vicious cycle, but there's also a virtuous cycle where we get a bit of a handle on this and a bit more of a handle on this and it becomes easier and easier, which is the pattern of virtue versus the pattern of vice. And that's very important pastoral guidance in the confessional to say to a guy, look, I know you're struggling. It's worth the struggle. If you persevere, it will get easier rather than it getting harder. Okay, let's read through my notes here in terms of what I'm saying here. So it's the page is called Reforming the Sex Drive. Some science-based observations and practical advice. So the sex drive is not fixed in its amount. We can increase it, and then it becomes difficult to control. Every healthy man has a sex drive, but in its natural state, it's re relatively easy to control. So first, the vicious cycle. When we do certain things, the body gets a chemical high in response to sexual pleasure. Our sex drive then increases and we then struggle to control it. So viewing, viewing a sexual image doesn't just affect us then at that moment, but it increases our drive for future days or weeks. This is what the science now shows us. Thinking even, thinking a sexual thought, entertaining a, a daydream, increases your drive likewise for future days if not weeks. Masturbation and its sexual pleasure increases our drive for a period of time. So that all of this creates a vicious circle so that it becomes increasingly difficult to be pure because we've caused our sex drive to increase. I say our current impurity is the accumulation of many individual impure acts. So, you know, as I said repeatedly about virtue, how do we make virtue grow? Repetition, repetition, repetition. But if that repetition is about something impure, everything is in the opposite direction. We just increase that vice of impurity. Now, in contrast, um, the language I'm using here is taken from this book in terms of, they use the word starving, the sexual appetite. So in our Catholic moral theology, we refer to the appetites. So if you take that word appetite, what would the thing to do be with it? Starve it. So the virtuous circle. Every time we starve our sexual appetite, our sex drive decreases eventually down to a natural state. So starving the eyes. 
Every time we refrain from looking impure, impurely, our sexual fantasies lack something to think about and our sex drive decreases. Starving the mind. Every time we refrain one thought, our drive decreases slightly and it becomes easier for the future. Starving ourselves of the pleasure. Every time a man who is addicted to masturbation refrains himself, his sex drive decreases slightly and this then becomes easier the next time. So each single victory in the battle makes future victories much easier to achieve. Now I next have some points scientifically here, time-wise. I say this is progressive, as in a gradual development, but I say a man in serious habitual sin, a guy who is frequently, consistently masturbating, will be able to drop his sex drive to an easily controllable state in six weeks. Now, if you're giving that advice to a 15-year-old, six weeks sounds like eternity. Um, yeah, but there is something real that changes scientifically in six weeks. Uh, the science also indicates even in one week, he will sense a difference, but he will likely hit a wall at three weeks. That like any addiction, um, he'll hit a wall. So if you try and come off cocaine, not that I've had the experience of that, but um, any of these heavy addictions, to withdraw from them is difficult, but then there comes a stage when the, the withdrawal becomes almost overwhelming. There's a, a wall that has to be kind of pushed through to get to the other side of it. There's something similar here with the addiction to impurity. If the young man does push through, his whole level of desire will drop, become more manageable. That the self-mastery is progressive. So that's also something you need to guide and warn people of in confession. That the process of it getting easier isn't just going to be linear. It's going to reach some certain stages where the battle will get much more difficult. There's something hormonal going on, yeah. But would you say that that wall is like easier to push through if you're like being a man of virtue and like you're praying your rosary every day and you're going to mass every day, especially in that time where it becomes really difficult? You know, I mean, we're all seminarians, so we do that anyways. But like for the average Joe, you know, that has school class and stuff, um, I think like really emphasizing the sacraments. Yes, Yes, but that would be, and I think that's a really good observation to be adding to this. Here I'm just quoting in a sense biological scientific data. So we can add in parallel to that supernatural aids. So a young man who knows, okay, this is going to get really difficult in a few weeks. If I make sure at that time I'm more busy at the gym, I'm more entertained with meeting up with friends, the, the, the natural things, but the supernatural things of making sure I'm saying the rosary, of adoration. Um, so devotion to the Blessed Sacrament is the single greatest tool to overcome impurity. There's something about the physical proximity 
about our Lord present in his physical reality that aids us in our physicality uh, in purity. Our Lady in the Rosary, uh, likewise, one of these benefits, one of these weapons in the warfare that is unquantifiable in terms of the, the graces that come with that. That you can't say, oh, it works because of this, that, and the other mapped out in some grid. Um, just Our Lady promises, tells us to say the Rosary, and she gives us, obtains for us, her, her son's graces um, when we say the Rosary. As well as, if a, if a young guy's got this battle, even if he doesn't go to confession weekly on a regular basis, to come weekly during this time frame when he's wanting to conquer this, um, he's then going to have more grace, more stability for that time frame. Other thoughts I throw in here? So there's a whole way about of being strategic about this, about supporting a young man that there are strategies you can overcome this. Um, it's not just deciding and it will all be easy. Um, okay, I'm not going to go through in detail the points on the th there. Um, bouncing the eyes, they use this metaphor. Um, to acquire a habit, I see something, and rather than doing a double take and having a good look at those legs, um, I, I see this and I bounce my eyes to something else. Um, that I get a habit of, there are many things in life that it's not helpful for me to look at, to bounce my eyes elsewhere, to okay, suddenly decide that I'm going to find that tree out in the garden there, very interesting. Um, bounce the eyes to something else. Um, you can't just bounce them away, you've got to bounce them to something else. Thoughts. Um, uh, in that section on thoughts, can we, have, have I elaborated on the word mortify before? I've just been surprised how many seminarians aren't familiar with the word mortifying our thoughts. So the word mortification literally means to put something to death. Um, there are things that need to be put to death in my life. St. Paul uses this image to put the old Adam to death, to crucify the old man. My thoughts, I have various chains of thought that just take me nowhere good, and I need to kill that chain of thought. A thought of... Uh, anger and judgment and resentment. Um, I see that guy, I remember what he said to me last week, how he sat in my seat three days ago, uh, and there's a whole chain of thinking that goes along there, and I just know it's not going to take me anywhere useful. I need to cut that, kill that chain of thinking. Um, similarly with the impurity. There's trains of thinking that we just need to know I need to stop this train of thought now. How do I do that? Well, you can't just say no to yourself and say, well, stop thinking about that. You need to put something else in there to think about. Um, 
So that might be something religious to focus, to think of our, our Lord's passion on the cross. Might be something entertaining, the latest Marvel movie. Um, it might be a work problem that is complicated, that just is kind of enough to distract you, but something else to think about. Um, okay, can you see where it says uh, the bullet point that starts process your thoughts properly? That's kind of halfway down the, th the thought section. Just want to go through that a bit more closely. So this is again from this book, Every Young Man's Battle. They suggest this way, processing your thoughts. How do you think about something? So they say, if you see a girl or think of a girl, think of her in a certain category, process her in a certain way. So see a person to be loved, not a body. See that is someone's sister or that is someone else's future wife, not mine. Thinking of someone in those categories, processing them in those categories, just changes how I'm thinking. Whereas if I'm just thinking about the body, the physical shape, that processing is going to send my thoughts in a, a certain direction. So how we process, the categories we process our thoughts are a powerful way of changing that trajectory of thinking. Okay, next say, when faced with a particularly tempting woman, first line of thought defense, this relationship threatens my union with Christ, thus I must not entertain it. Second line of thought defense, I have no right to think these thoughts, this woman does not belong to me. Third line of thought defense, heighten my alert, say red alert and bounce my eyes away from the woman. Um, and they suggest um, having a, a Bible verse that you repeat to yourself. Um, that might be a Bible verse you could change over time. Um, but you need to put something in your head to have a thing you remember. Okay, I'm blessed are the pure of heart. Yeah, I just... For me, I just wanted to add, uh, because I was reading a book on uh, contemplative prayer, and that's kind of one of the ways in, in contemplation, uh, basically, uh, you know, to be in the state of contemplation and always admire God. Uh, you always have a phrase or something that always directs you to God. So I just wanted to know that that's like kind of the same yeah. thing within that book. So. Good. Okay, in the porn section, halfway down at where it's got that little section, how to avoid it. Um, Say, so tell yourself, this is a real person, not just the TV show. So something begins to appear on the internet, immediately tell yourself, this is a real person. Ask yourself, how much are they being paid? Tell yourself this isn't a victimless sin. By your clicking on the link, by your continuing to watch it, somewhere out there, Google and all those advertisers are counting the fact that you're watching. And that is creating revenue and that is trapping somebody in that way of life. Your viewing it is not a victimless sin. 
Tell yourself, this is someone's sister. I wouldn't want my sister to be reduced to this. Obviously, if the guy's only got brothers, that's not going to be a rationale that's going to help him much. Um, but if you have a sister, that's a pretty powerful way of instantly, I wouldn't want someone else looking at my sister that way. Okay, there's a, a few practical points there. Over the page, and we're going to move on to a different question again in this regard. And again, this is what are among the things to talk about with your parish youth group to be advising, um, and also one-on-one. -on -one. Courting versus dating. So um, back home in the UK, I've been involved running youth group, um, youth conferences. Each summer we'd have a week uh, that we'd take youth from our youth group in the parish to at that, among the things we would talk about would be this. Um, courting versus dating. Courting is a very old-fashioned word. Yes, we don't talk about courting. Dating, I'm, I use these words to indicate this modern thing of dating is very different from the classical thing of courting. Courting, there comes a stage in your life when you're ready to marry when you're looking for a suitable person to spend your life with, that's when you engage in the courting process. Dating is very different. Dating is rooted in the here and now, just a thing I'm doing with no particular future trajectory. I'm just out to find someone that we're just gonna enjoy each other's company. That's kind of what dating is about in the modern sense. And it's just a very different trajectory. And there are various studies that show that having, even apart from the question of um, anything else, just that the process of having this girlfriend, that girlfriend, that girlfriend, that girlfriend, creates a romantic instability that to then finally find someone you want to spend your life with, there's something within you that's got used to just a whole string of girls rather than spending time with a girl is about something serious that I'm wanting, I'm hoping is going to go somewhere long term. Okay, let me read through how I've phrased it here. So a key question to have youth asking. Do you want to engage in behavior that will be fun now? Or do you want to build behavior aiming at a long, stable, happy future marriage? So contemporary dating, this activity is aimed at the now, a romantic relationship in the short term. And I note this concept doesn't exist in the Christian tradition. You look back at the books of the saints, what they advise for the laity, what they advise, the None of them have advice on dating. They have advice on finding a suitable spouse. Um, courting, in contrast, this activity is aimed at finding a future spouse. Not everyone courted is equally serious, but anyone courted is only courted because you are seeking testing for the long term. 
Let's say this is the only style of dating that exists in the Christian tradition. So what does a suitable girlfriend look like? Well, she's got to, in some sense, be a possible future long-term partner. So she needs to share your values. She needs to share your goal, namely chastity, purity, marriage, not just the goal of let's have a good time now and not think about how it will affect our future relationships. So look for a girl who shares your values, not just who's pretty or fun. And saying bold, a point I make uh, very emphatically, don't waste time in an unsuitable relationship. So every minute you are in a relationship with this girl is stopping you being free to meet another girl. And that girl might be the one you're going to spend your life with. So if you know this girl you're with now isn't someone you want to spend your life with, just continuing to go out with her because you're going out with her now risks preventing you meeting someone you might want to spend your life with. And that's a bit of practical advice you've presumably heard many times, yeah. Um, and obviously isn't very relevant in the seminary context. This is what you would be saying to others, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, some practical stuff now about boundaries. Yeah, so a girl and a guy, they are dating. What should be their physical behavior? Yeah. Sure, yeah. It was super hot, now it's got cold. Yeah. So she's she, going to see that and she's going to think, oh, that's how I, that's a healthy relationship, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. How do, you, how do you help somebody in that situation? Because that person is definitely going to have some crazy, like, stuff going on. Even if they don't think they right. do, and yeah. Even if they want a court because they think this person is their lifelong partner, yeah. they always have this thing, oh, I can just get rid of them when I need to. Yeah. Well, what would you all say? So the scenario being pointed out is frequently the person my generation, the parent my generation, uh, isn't stably married and the man my generation has got a string of, of women he's cycling through. Uh, my daughter, that's what she sees as normative. Uh, so to be talking about only having a relationship that's going to be good for you for the long term just as a whole set of categories that the young person isn't even open to as a, as a possibility. Um, yeah. I think that would almost be even more easy to convince someone like that that a long-term relationship is better just because they can see from a practical perspective their father or mother or whoever who's going around and is obviously unhappy because they yeah. are not in this stable that when you tell someone about this, it'll be more enlightening than like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Right. I would also add is that they have the experience of, you know, obviously it's, what I've seen is some of my friends who have, you know, separated parents, they try their best, but it never works out. There's always um, 
we're seeing my friends that they're lacking into having that integrated mother figure or father figure because uh, either one isn't really fully in the picture and kind of showing them that within that the, the children they can uh, they know what they're being deprived of and they want that so right. it'll be it'll allow them to see that yeah there's this positive side because they won't be deprived of that so I think on, on one level there are lots who never even see the possibility of another way of living and loving but there are many who look at their parents and just see this is just I don't want to be like that my parents my, my mom my dad isn't happy this isn't working for them I somehow want to find something else to base my life on and you will find young adults in that category who will somehow end up in the church because they'll just have a sense we're the only ones who have another narrative and that's why it's important that when such a person comes you've got something to say um, the questions you're asking uh, we have answers to uh, and you're only beginning to ask the question rather than me kind of ram something down your throat kind of point you in the right direction um, the most anti-alcohol people are frequently children of alcoholics uh, frequently the people that are most opposed to divorce are children of divorce um, something similar I think with cycles of broken relationships um, and it's why in the parish you've got something ready to say and ready to give someone who's approaching you with those questions and in my experience you'll get some people that will come with questions but they're very far from being ready to commit and then there'll be other people who in the internet age will have thought it all through completely by themselves before they knock on your door um, and they've already decided to be Catholic um, and they'll already have a narrative about um, why they, they thought Pope Francis was the Antichrist but now they've realized that, uh, that, that they've kind of gone way off there before they've, uh, even before they entered the church um, and now that they, um, so that so people will come to you all kind of, you've got to have something ready to give them yeah that's kind of the, the point i'm trying to articulate broadly through all of this uh other vague comments boundaries so the boyfriend the girlfriend how should they behave with each other physically um i have had um young people say even to phrase it this way is is wrong because it's presuming that there is a physical aspect to their relationship uh, one way of doing this is to not have kind of physical contact at all this is my girlfriend we hang out together we are boyfriend and girlfriend um, all of these boundaries issues just aren't an issue for us because we just know we're not going to get that close and our marriage night is going to be the first time there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to do for the first time that is one way um, and I think that is obviously a very safe route for you as a priest as a pastor we as a pastor can't impose on someone the most super strict super safe method so we've got to indicate 
what's kind of required without saying, and there's a super, super safe way. Does that distinction make sense? So to, to know what is a possible safe route, but also know that isn't a morally required route. And I would say to not discourage someone taking that super safe route, but also indicating to them, yes, what you're doing is a super safe route. I commend you for it, but do know that isn't the only way of being a Catholic. And there are various examples that way as a, as a Catholic priest in lots of things in life. To have that distinction we know between what is required as a minimum and what might be good practice, safer practice, easier way to get to heaven, but isn't a required way. Okay, boundaries. I'm going to read through this little section here. I say, boundaries. These are patterns of behavior you agree with your girlfriend in advance so that you both know when or if you cross them. Um, a young couple need to have a good enough relationship that they can talk about this. A young couple need to talk about what they both want from and in the relationship. And a young Catholic couple need to discuss their physical boundaries in advance. If they only start talking about this um, 11 o'clock at night on the couch uh, in the you, yeah you see where I'm going with this um, th th it's too late it's not a, a good place to be trying to have a rational conversation okay some quotes there so these are from the books I footnote there let's go around reading these uh, in turn brother Adam could you read the first one we need to set guidelines in order to avoid temptations if you are alone at home and kissing your girlfriend on the couch, it is not the best time to start thinking about your boundaries. Know them in advance, because your judgment will be anything but objective during a passionate moment. Adam? Set some firm boundaries regarding intimate behaviors. Often couples who establish these boundaries and goals feel a sense of freedom, peace, and security in their relationship. Hunter? While discussing your boundaries, you may realize that the two of you are wired differently. For example, a woman needs to realize that a man's body works differently than hers. She might be content snuggling with a guy, but the guy's body is working at a much faster pace. Be honest with yourself and with each other and make your resolutions clear. Uh, that's why this book, Theology of His Body, Theology of Her Body, is trying to kind of introduce the teenager to the thought that um, the guy and the girl are wired differently. So she thinks, oh, we can do this uh, and we can, and she's fine being pure uh, afterwards. Uh, it's not so easy for him. She needs to realize he's wired differently. He, in parallel, all kinds of things a guy does that toys with a girl's emotions. Um, he has emotions too, but he isn't wired the same way she is. Um, he needs to know when he says things, they're going to have an effect on it. Uh, I then quote, avoid places where the two of you have fallen in the past. Um, and then I quote, bonding emotionally due to the release of the hormone oxytocin does occur in a sexual relationship that stops short of intercourse. That bond can be strong and is strong enough to mess up a dating relationship badly. 
Have you all heard of how oxytocin works in sex? So when a man and a woman have sexual intercourse, there is a hormone released that bonds the woman to the man um, at a biological level. Um, now we can easily see how as part of the body-soul unity that serves the whole relationship in marriage. But if they're engaging in sex and they're not married, what happens then is you get this bonding that happens in a relationship that's just going to be short term. And so there's a damage produced at a psychological, biological level because this bonding keeps being bonded and broken, bonded and broken. Um, so uh, I gave out in the sexual morality course um, studies in this regard that just show statistically sexual promiscuity before marriage scientifically damages your capacity to find chastity easy in marriage and permanence easy in marriage. Is that oxytocin? Like, just looking at the spectrum of things, like, it seems like it would damage women more than men. Because, like, if you look at the modern dating society, men seem to have a lot easier time going around sleeping with multiple women than women. Yeah. Like, if a woman has sex with a man, she has a hard time getting rid of, like, the thought right. of him. Whereas yeah. a man can just be like, yeah, to the next one or whatever. Um, and the hormone is released in the woman's body. So yes, um, that's what the science indicates as well. Um, so I think I've made this point before. I'm trying to get confused whether it's this course or the other the sexual morality course. We're at a moment in human history where Science now can look at the body, look at the hormones, look at the psychology, look at the statistical analysis, and we can say, what would society look like without chastity? And we can see very clearly what the hormones do, um, what the relationships have as the consequences, uh, how damaging it is. The flip side with some of this also, and the Church Ladies Having Better Sex article is kind of an indication of that, Two is actually we can get some glimpses of how healthy chastity is for a relationship too. Okay, the last thing to run through, page seven of my notes. So this is a specific sheet I've given to teenagers. Um, guidance on dating boundaries, kissing, kissing and petting, especially for guys. So you see the two columns there. One is indicating when you're married, all of these are fine behaviors, appropriate behaviors. That's part of what marriage is. You've given your body to each other. But now, the other column, there's a whole bunch of those activities that will be suitable one day, but are not suitable now. What is suitable now? Holding hands, hugging, some kissing. With respect to kissing, uh, at the risk of stating the obvious, only for your girlfriend, not a random girl at a party. It's a genuine sign of affection, not just of lust. It's not a random act and that the body speaks. So when you do sexual morality, you will look at John Paul II's image of the theology of the body, that the body has built in signs, significances, meanings. When we use the body in a way that 
is contrary to those meanings, we damage ourselves. A kiss means something. It shouldn't just be a random thing with a random girl. So petting. Is petting the right term in the American context? Oh, dang it. Um, okay, so. Okay. Um, actually, I remember now we had this conversation last year, but no one could give me an American word that was the equivalent. I've heard it, but Hansy. Hmm? Yeah. You said Hansy. I think Hansy's probably. It's it's petting is what you would do when making out. Like it's feeling. It's a term that gets used. It's just not petting does. Yeah, I I don't know what would get used more often, but I've heard it before. Yeah. You the the word pet the word petting is not just the back of her head. It's well, but the, but the thing about the word petting is it covers the whole spectrum. So can you think of a word, maybe not right now, that somehow covers the whole spectrum from the fond rubbing of the shoulder to uh, inside her underwear? The, the whole... Making out is, I think, already further down the spectrum of what petting includes than necessary. You have the vague idea what the word means. Please come back to me with a thought of how to recategorize these notes for an American audience. Okay, what do I say? Why is petting often wrong? Say, because it, it awakens a desire that should only be satisfied in sex. It awakens a desire that should only be satisfied when you're married. Mary Beth Bonacci describes the contradiction like this. I love you so much that I'm going to make you want something I'm not going to give you. So the girl makes out with the guy, turns him on in a certain way with the intention of, but we're not going a step further. Well, that's, there's an unfairness there to intend to hype someone up um, and not. So petting usually involves turning on a desire you won't satisfy. The private parts and foreplay are designed to awaken desire for sex, which means they should only be involved when you're in a relationship that, where you can intend sex. Um, I note that the brain in the man especially shuts down and stops thinking when you get excited. So you need to think in advance how far you want to go. And that's part of why date rape is so common, that the man loses his ability to think the more he's aroused. So if he hasn't thought through and the couple haven't discussed well in advance what their boundary is going to be, it becomes very difficult for him to think I've crossed a boundary if he hasn't established a boundary clearly already. So phrase it, why rev up an engine when you're not going to drive the car? To use an analogy. And in the bottom box there, I 
refer to arousal. So um, getting excited, having an erection is a sign that you've revved up the engine and need to back down. So what is an indication that the making out has gone, that you need to step back? That's the sign. Um, the girls don't have the same issue or problem. Um, so the girls often don't understand boys in this regard. Um, so the boy needs to know himself and know that the girl may not understand what she's doing to him. These authors all argue that French kissing with that is uh, inappropriate because they say it just always leads to arousal, which wouldn't, I think if I was going to talk in terms of logical necessity, necessarily follow, but that's the argument they would give. It's not therefore safe behavior in terms of chastity. The instant you have a boyfriend and a girlfriend, a good Catholic couple, asking themselves these questions, they should be able to navigate a fair bit of what they're aiming for and what they're aiming to avoid. But somehow they, they need to have articulated, and it's better with teenagers to flag up these scenarios before they start dating. Uh, rather than when they're already dating. Um, <coughs> comments further? Yeah. Would boundaries lead to, especially for women like modesty, would that also lead Yeah, because they don't touch on modesty there. Yeah, modesty is <laughs> a very difficult issue. So the two summer camps I've been at the last two summers, both of them, there's been this phenomenon. Um, super young Catholic girls uh, at that phase where they've had some kind of come to Jesus moment, super devout, but there's something that's not quite integrated yet. They're wanting to be the super uber Catholic, so they're coming into mass with their mantillas but still with shorts that barely cover the underwear. Yeah, so the modesty to cover their hair, <laughs> but um, it's very, I'd say in general, it's better for a woman to have that conversation with a woman, um, but then it needs to be the right woman, that some women are just busybodies, like telling everyone else what to do. These are, and these are also things where the difference between really good safe behavior and morally required behavior is not obvious where that distinction lies. So the church and the catechism as we quote on the first page of these notes talks about modesty. It doesn't define what modesty is. And modesty does vary in different cultures. Um, so there's a certain amount of the eye getting used to seeing a loss of flesh and it meaning less, but it never means nothing. Um, so modesty is a related thing, but yeah, I've not got guidance there. Uh, to what extent is modesty based in culture? 
Well, that's kind uh, of what I, yeah. Presumably there would be different standards based off of where you are, right? Like that's, yeah, I thought I just said okay. that. But yeah, there's so many things are bouncing around here. Okay. Yeah, so it, it does vary in different cultures. Um, having mentioned the mantilla, where does the mantilla come from? So it's often referred to St. Paul who says a woman's head must be covered. Yes, in church. Well, in, um, and in the Catholic tradition, that translation coming out of the Vulgate um, goes with a woman's head being covered. Literally, um, uh, Scott Hahn, Jeff Cavins uh, would be among contemporary authors looking at the scriptural text itself. The phrase that gets translated, a woman's hair must be covered, is actually that she mustn't let her hair down. Now, why would letting her hair down be significant? Because in the context of where they're writing to, a woman letting her hair down went with temple prostitution uh, and dancing. So there's a whole packaging there that St. Paul is saying, women are not to do this when you have your Christian gatherings, because there's a whole thing we know goes with that. Um, so to say, therefore, a woman's head must be covered and you must wear a mantilla um, doesn't really have a scriptural foundation. Um, but it is in our Christian tradition. And generally speaking, um, a young girl who's wanting to be uber Catholic, I'm not wanting to discourage her. Okay, I've run through a few things this morning. What's the main thing? Battle for purity. It is a battle. It's a lifelong struggle. Um, even as an old man, it never goes away as an issue. But as a priest, if you pray, if you are regular in your spiritual direction, if you are regular in confession, if you're doing your spiritual reading, if you're saying your daily rosary, all of these things are such that the struggle just becomes very manageable. But when you let any of those things slip, it's easy for the whole thing to fall away. Um, the priest who leaves the priesthood, runs off with uh, a woman, he stopped praying a long time before that. Why did he stop praying? Because he's a bad person? No, um, because he got busy doing his apostolate, that he had this group, that group, that, that he might have been super, Catholic and doing stuff that not all the other priests around him were too lazy to get on with doing or whatever, or not imaginative, but you can't be so apostolic that you lose your grounding in what is the source of our apostolates. You know the book, The Soul of the Apostolate, it's our union with the Lord, it's prayer. Um, if we keep that in place, the battle for purity can be won every day. If we let it slide, we're going to lose this battle too, um, but it can be won.